You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Clint Wright. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday's service now. Uh, my name is Clint, and I want to add my welcome to Brittany's and to Adam's. And I would ask you to just consider this morning that maybe you're here not just by your own choice or certainly not by accident, but you are here because God wants a relationship with you and wants to reveal himself to you. And so with that in mind this morning, let's get our Bibles open. And we are continuing in our study of the book of Mark, which has been a wonderful book. It has been challenging for me. It's been uh, eye-opening for me. It's been exciting for me. Uh, and I got good news. We're going to have a little bit of an appetizer this morning. So before we get to all the food in the back, what we have this morning is another Markin sandwich. Now, if you haven't been here, we've talked about this. Mark tends to give these stories and the, these events all mixed together. And so they may seem like different events, just kind of one happening after another. But what we find out is, like a sandwich, it's supposed to be consumed all together. And that's what we have this morning. So he'll start a story, and then there'll be what seems like an interruption, and then he'll go back to the story. And that's kind of that last piece of bread. And we're supposed to take these all together to learn something about him, about ourselves, usually about faith. And so that's what we have this morning. In fact, I want to show you a little chart I came across in my study. Uh, you don't have to memorize these or look for all of these. But these are 14 different either exact similarities or exact contrast of the two stories we have this morning. And so we're not going to have time to cover all of them, but I'd encourage you this week, if you don't know what to study in God's Word, go back and read these stories. See if you can find all the different comparisons and contrasts, because here's what Mark is doing. Each one of these is like a thread that he is using to weave and sew and tie these stories together to teach us something. So if I had to break these two stories really into three parts, I break them down this way. The first piece of bread, desperation. We are going to see a desperate man. Then the interruption, the meat of the sandwich, determination. We, you're going to see one of the most determined people you will ever meet in your life. Then we're going to go back to desperation. But the desperate guy has got even more desperate. Mark has cranked up the knob on his desperation. But we have to understand that this is all happening in the larger context of Jesus's authority. Mark is trying to tell us who this Jesus is. And we're finding out he is the captain now. And so what has happened leading up to this, Jesus calmed the storm and he shows his authority over nature. He has healed a man who is demon-possessed and shown his authority over the spiritual realm. And today we're going to see him have his authority over disease and even death. Even death. And so what Mark is trying to show us is in every realm of existence, Jesus is king. He has authority over every realm. He is supreme. He can do anything. And so then the question becomes, okay, if Jesus can do anything in any realm he wants to, what's he doing here and what does he want to do? And that's where we get to Mark 10, 45. Now, this is a theme of the book of Mark. I've asked everyone in here, young and old, to memorize this. And I got to be honest, y'all, I did a pop quiz last Sunday out in the lobby. Results weren't great, okay? So we got to keep working on it. Mark 10, 45. Uh, do we have it on screen? Tell you what, let's read this all out loud together. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
So that's what this all-supreme king wants to do. Mark is trying to show us this king is the suffering servant. He wants to save you. That's what Jesus wants to do. Now, let me just tell you, if that verse, it seems trite, if it seems simple, if it's getting old and boring, it's not that you're saying it too much. It's that you're not saying it enough. If we would let that verse marinate deep into our hearts, into our lives, it would change everything about our life. So that's who Jesus is. What's our response? What do we do when we encounter this Jesus? Well, we said it a couple weeks ago, and then Mark Kirkendall brought it back up last week. Mark 1.15. This is the other verse I want everyone here, young and old, to memorize, preach to yourself, put reminders up, teach yourself this, because this is our response to Jesus. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's it. That's the only appropriate response to Jesus Christ is to repent and to believe. And we talked about this a few weeks ago. Repentance is to abandon everything that is not his kingdom. And belief is just the other side of the coin. It is to actively trust, place all of your hope, all of your trust in everything that is his kingdom. But we have to understand these aren't two separate things. They go together. And these two things together make up faith. This is what faith looks like. This is what it is. And it is all God wants from us. So here's what we're going to find out this morning. These two stories of desperation and determination can be the seedbed of our faith. In both stories, people come to Jesus with this, some small kind of little piece of faith. It's small. You could even say it's self-serving. It's uninformed. There's a lot they don't know about Jesus, but it is still there. But here's what's important to note. The most important part of faith isn't the faith. The most important part of faith is the object of the faith. They are coming to the God-man who has authority over every realm and wants to save them. See, in both cases, one out of desperation, one out of determination, Jesus responds to their little bit of faith with more. More than they ask for. More than they ever even hoped or dared to imagine. And here's what I think Mark would want us to know, our big takeaway of how he's weaving these two stories together this morning. When we want a transaction, Jesus gives us a relationship. When we want a transaction, Jesus gives us a relationship. Let's start reading beginning in verse 21. It says, When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him and was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus, by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come, lay your hands on her so that she may be well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed, followed him and thronged about him. So here we meet this guy named Jairus. He's a synagogue official. Now, he wasn't a Pharisee or a scribe, but you could think of him as the top lay person. He is a lay leader, the lay leader of the synagogue. He was like the president and CEO of the local synagogue. So he, he kept up the grounds and the buildings. He arranged for the festivals for the different rabbis to come in and teach. He had the keys and he had the checkbook of this synagogue, which means in that town, he's a man of a high reputation. He's probably a man of some means and some decent wealth. And here this guy comes throwing himself in front of Jesus, 
in front of everybody, in front of a crowd, which would have been the most shocking thing any of them had ever seen. Think about it. What, what do we know so far about the religious leaders, the, the scribes, the Pharisees? What's their opinion of Jesus? Are they high on him? They really like this guy? So glad he came to our town? No, they hate him. In fact, we found out in chapter 3, they accuse him of being Satan, and they are already plotting to trap him, and they are plotting to kill him. So here's the deal. This guy, Jairus, he'd been in on all the meetings, on all the late night, rabble, rabble, how are we going to stop this guy? This guy, he must be from Satan. What are we going to do? He's there, and he probably agrees with him. If nothing else, at a minimum, he's keeping quiet and nodding his head and shaking in agreement. And he comes, this man who's been part of this plot, and throws himself at Jesus' feet. And in verse 23, we see why. His daughter is dying. This is an act of desperation. He will do anything. And so this guy comes, and he may have lots of resources, he may have lots of authority, but he is powerless. He can't fix his daughter. And like any daddy, any daddy in here, there is nothing he isn't willing to sacrifice or give for his daughter to have life. And so out of desperation of nothing else, he just throws himself at Jesus' feet. Now, throw yourself, throwing yourself at Jesus' feet, at anyone's feet, that's not something we do a lot these days. It was a very powerful symbol back then. It's really, when you think about it, it is uh, an embodiment, a physical action of what Mark is talking about, repentance and belief. It is an act of belief. It is a recognition of Jesus' authority over every realm. He has come to believe exactly the picture that Mark is painting here. And it is that of an act of trust. To throw yourself at someone's feet is a saying, I'm completely in your hands. You can do whatever you will. And it's also an act of repentance. Yo, what has Jairus given up here? What's he letting go of? All of his reputation? Probably most of his uh, wealth he's risking. Remember, he's doing this in front of a crowd. Everyone he knows is seeing this, and a lot of people he doesn't know are seeing this. So he does this. He's thinking, I don't have a job tomorrow. I don't have a reputation tomorrow. I probably don't have any friends tomorrow. Now let's just pause right here. What can we say about Jairus's faith so far? I mean, there's some, there is some faith that made him do this, but we call it a foxhole kind of faith, right? Uh-oh, things are getting crazy. Things are getting bad. I, I'm, I'm pleading for help. So you could say maybe it's a little self-serving, sure. But um, you could say there's a lot he doesn't understand. There's a lot he doesn't know about Jesus. But here's what we have to say. Whatever you want to say about his faith, good or bad, mature or immature, it's in the right person. It's got the right object, you see. And so imagine his relief, verse 24, when Jesus says, Imagine this father's joy for his, his daughter when Jesus says, let's go. Let's do it. Now, Jesus, when this man falls at his feet, he is staring at a man who has persecuted him, probably lied about him, tried to trap him. He doesn't get mad. He doesn't say no. He doesn't shame him. He just, he just goes. Now, y'all, I was reading this week, and I had to be honest, I wouldn't have done that. Here's how I would have handled that situation. I think I would have gone eventually. But first, I'm going to rub it in a little bit. I'm going to get real tacky in front of everybody with some like, oh, well, look who it is right here, huh? Not a demon anymore, am I, Jairus? Okay. 
Now you need my help. Okay, I see. Fine. All right, let's go. Jesus doesn't do any of that. Why? Because the whole reason Jesus came, to take his enemies and turn them into his friends. And so Jesus immediately says, let's go. We're doing this. And in that moment, think about Jairus in that moment. He, in that moment, he thinks the most important thing, the best thing that Jesus can do for him is to heal his daughter. But I'm going to ask you to consider something. What if, what if Jesus is saying, I actually want to do more than that? I think that's where the text is going to point us. Let's keep going. Just, so just as we're ready to find that out, we're on the edge of our seats, going to see what's going to happen. Mark changes scenes. And so here we're in the middle part of our sandwich. And so we go from desperation to now determination. Let's pick it back up in verse 25. He says, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians, had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowds and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up. She felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. So we encounter this woman who has been unclean all the time for 12 years. And so back in those days, a, a bleeding body, if you were bleeding, you were unclean. That means you couldn't go to the temple. You couldn't touch anyone. If you touched anybody, they became unclean. It, mean, it meant you couldn't participate in your community. She is absolutely isolated for 12 years, unclean, untouchable, unwanted. And then we find out she spent all she had. She's bankrupt. She's emptied her resources, doing everything she can. And not only did it not work, it made it worse. And so here she sits. She has no resources left to heal herself. I think it's important to ask, why is this woman unnamed? Mark will do this. He'll give some names and not give others. This is a device from Mark. He'll, we'll see him use it repeatedly to leave people unnamed. And I think, I think the reason is he wants us to be able to see ourselves in her. He's saying, I'm the woman. You're the woman. We are all unclean all the time. That's us. See, there's even a picture here. The chronic bleeding is a picture of constant loss of life. God taught them in the Old Testament, life, life is in the blood. And so to be walking around, always losing your blood, you are dying even as you're living. We're the walking dead. That's the picture there. And, and we're bankrupt. We've tried everything we can to fix ourselves, and it doesn't get better. It just gets worse. How is that even possible? But it happens over and over and over again. And so we, we're empty. We don't have the resources we need to heal ourselves. And imagine, imagine in verse 29, immediately she feels her own healing. After 12 years, Instantly, she knows she is free of her disease 
and of her shame. What a moment. And Jesus feels it too. So in verse 30, he, he asks, he asks, who, who touched me? And the disciples are like, are you kidding, Jesus? Look around. Everyone touched you. Everyone's crowding in on you. What are you talking about? And there's actually this little hint in the original text. It's, it's really subtle, but I think important. He actually asks uh, the feminine. He asks, which woman touched me? See, I think Jesus knows. He knows who it is. He knows this, this woman. So what's, what's he doing? Why not just let her go? I mean, she has gotten what she came for. She has been healed. Why not just let her go on her way? Why stop the whole thing? Well, Jesus wants to give her more. See, she came wanting just a hit and run transaction, but Jesus wants a relationship. So he will not let her remain anonymous. He won't stop until he sees her and she sees him. So we find out verse 33, she tries to hide, but Jesus just keeps pressing. And, and so finally she comes forth, but she's probably hiding because she's scared. Remember, her whole past 12 years, everyone she touched was also unclean. And so she's thinking, maybe he's going to be angry with me. From all these crowds, he, he's going to publicly shame me for making him unclean. There's something she doesn't realize yet. You can't make God unclean. When our sin collides with Jesus, we're not changed. We, we are changed. He is not. See, we become clean. He doesn't become unclean. So finally, those, her bravery and her determination, she comes face to face. And what does she do? She falls at his feet. The same thing Jairus does, the same response, the same act of faith, the same belief and repentance. And Jesus responds to her with some of the most amazing words you will ever read in your Bible. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Now, I think we need to be very clear here on what is really astonishing about what Jesus is saying. So on the surface, we would think it's the be healed part. That's what would have amazed the crowd. That's what would have amazed us if we were there. And that's certainly what the woman came looking for. But again, what if, what if her physical healing is not the most important thing in her life? See, the statements here are actually in order of importance. And so the biggest miracle, the most important thing Jesus says to her is the first word, daughter. Daughter. The God of the universe calls this social outcast his daughter. And in fact, this is the only time that Jesus uses this term in all of the Gospels. Now, this, this is big. Listen, I love all of y'all. Most of y'all. No, all of y'all. I love all of y'all. I'd love to hang out with all of y'all. This, this is great. Looking forward to potluck, the whole thing. But I only have one daughter and one son. And with the exception of my wife, no one, no offense to y'all, but no one else takes up more real estate in my heart. And so you may be my friend. You may even be my best friend. That's nothing compared to my daughter or my son. See, this is why these stories are woven together. We have already seen in this story a daddy his, who is willing to do anything and everything so that his daughter may have life. And Jesus is saying, listen, Jairus ain't the only daddy fighting for his daughter in this story. Jesus is saying, I am willing to sacrifice anything and everything so that my daughter can have 
life. So Jesus tells her, he's saying to her, not only have I healed your disease, I've included you in my family. You hold a special place in my heart. I will do anything and everything to give you life. Now, at this point in Mark, this woman has no way of knowing anything about the cross. But I'm convinced when it comes, she's not going to be surprised. I'm convinced that when Jesus sees her after 12 years of suffering and he refuses to let her remain anonymous and he calls her his daughter, in that moment, she knows he is willing to give his life for mine. He's willing to do anything and everything that I may have life. She knows, even if he hasn't said it yet, she knows that Mark 10, 45 is true, that this king of the universe is the suffering servant who wants to save me. You see, she came just looking for a quick transaction. Jesus has given her relationship. Now, this is an amazing encounter. All who saw it had to have their jaw on the floor amazed. Everybody except one person. One man. The other daddy in the story. Remember Jairus? Now, while this is all going on and everyone else is amazed, his daughter's life still hangs in the balance. He is becoming more and more desperate every second while someone else is getting a miracle. Let's pick it up in verse 35. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James, They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. Now here's, here's something that's interesting here. First of all, did you notice how old the daughter was? 12 years. Seems like there's been something parallel going on for 12 years in this town. See how he's weaving these stories together. But there's something else. He stops calling Jairus by name. He transitions to this nameless figure. Why? The same reason the woman is nameless. Mark is saying, I'm Jairus and the woman, and so are you. We are all helpless against death. We're all desperate when it comes to death. Now, if you were Jairus, what would you be thinking? That the moment whoever it was came up and said, it took too long. She's dead. Just leave Jesus alone. I mean, the whole way to, even when Jesus stops, I'd be like, Stop talking. Everyone out of the way. Get out of the way. We got to hurry. We got we to go. Let's get this show moving. I'd be thinking, this is tacky. I'd be thinking, listen, she's been sick for 12 years. She can wait two more hours. My daughter can't wait. Let's go. We got to get moving. And then Jesus stops to talk to her and ask questions. And she tells, it says the whole truth. She tells Jesus her whole story, not the quick version. Now, I'm going to use an illustration that says much more about the fallen nature of husbands than it does about wives. Husbands, you come home at the end of the day and you tell your wife, wife, tell me the whole story, the whole truth of what happened today. 
Is it, how long is that going to take? <laughs> right? You'll be there a while. Now imagine it wasn't just a day, it was 12 years. And then imagine every second that goes by, your daughter is fighting for her last breath. That must have seemed like an eternity. And so his desperation shifts to hopelessness when that servant comes along. Some people say, don't even worry about it, she's dead. So he's lost his daughter. Plus, remember, Jairus looks like a complete fool now. All his friends warned him, don't trust this Jesus. He's no good. So the woman's miracle is Jairus' disaster. You ever been there? God, why didn't you pay attention to my need? You know what? If Jesus loved me so much, why did my life end up this way? Why didn't he hurry? Why did he take so long? Why did he delay? How do you handle God's delay in your life? Now, we know how the story ends. Eventually, Jairus is going to know how he ends. But still, even after that, I'm sure he would have much preferred his daughter just never died in the first place. Would have saved him lots of heartache. What if Jesus wants to give him even more than this one transaction? What if that's what Jesus really wants to do? See, in verse 36, in this moment of it had to be hopelessness, heartache, even anger. Jesus turns to Jairus. And what does he say? What does he tell Jairus? Do not fear, only believe. That's it. There it is again. What does Jesus want from us? Only believe. And that, the way he says it, it's the present active imperative tense. It means continual, habitual action. He's saying keep believing. Now believe. Then now believe. Now believe. In every now, keep believing. When I'm hurrying, when I'm delaying. When you understand, when you don't understand. Just keep believing. Jairus, you came to me in faith. Keep that same faith now. Just keep believing. So he goes and he rides on the scene of a great commotion. Now this is something, again, that's not really in our culture. In our culture, when we mourn, we tend to get quiet and get solemn. It's the exact opposite in that culture. When they mourn, they get loud and boisterous. And the more the heartache, the louder they get. In fact, back then, it used to be a common practice they would hire mourners. They were prof- you could be a professional mourner. And so they would hire these people in to come and just scream and wail. And they would even have musical instruments that they would be playing. And the, the wealthier you were, you'd hire more of them to kind of demonstrate your mourning and your grief. And so when Jesus shows up, this would have been loud. This would have been chaotic and on purpose. And amidst all of this, he tells them, no, 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 she's just sleeping. This is a euphemism throughout the New Testament for the death of someone who is a follower of Jesus Christ. We see it over and over again that the death of a believer in the picture is not permanent. It's temporary. Jesus is saying death Listen, what we think of as the most permanent, the most unavoidable evil that we can think of, he's saying, no, 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 it's only temporary, and it's actually, through me, easily overcome. He's saying death for a follower of Jesus is just like a nap, just like a little nap. And then we're told they laugh at him when he says this. Now, why would professional mourners be laughing at him? They've seen a dead body. They know a dead body when they see one. This girl is dead, dead. She's not just in a coma. And so they think this is ridiculous. And then watch what Jesus does. He takes this girl by the hand. He touches her. 
This makes the second unclean person Jesus has touched that day. Bleeding body is unclean. A dead body is unclean. But again, we don't make Jesus unclean. He makes us clean. And he says two words to her. And Mark gives us the Aramaic. Why does he do that? Well, I think he's trying to show us, trying to paint a picture of Jesus as a tender, loving daddy who is going to the bedside of his daughter. He says two words. Talitha is an Aramaic word that means little girl. It's like a pet name. Honey, sweetie. Kumi is a a very gentle word as well. It just means, hey, get on up. It's the kind of thing you'd say if you were trying to gently rouse your child out of a nap. And so the picture here is not Jesus, you know, kicking down the door down all boisterous. Behold, come forth, child. It's the exact opposite. It's a daddy walking up to the bedside, reaching down, touching his daughter, saying, hey, sweetie, hey, it's time to get up. In this moment, Jesus shows his authority over death. Can you imagine this girl who was dead, dead? And this powerful king walks in and treats her just like his daughter, and she arises. In fact, that word arise that Mark uses, this is the same word in 1428 that Jesus will use for himself. Whatever happened to me, he's saying, first, I'm doing it with her when he predicts his own resurrection. What Jesus is doing here for Jairus, for us, for everyone there is giving them a foretaste of resurrection. The point is to give us a picture of what we will all experience in the resurrection, all of us who have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so the crowd, we find out the end, the crowd is overcome with amazement, which I'm like, yeah, you think? Of course they are. And so it will be for all of us, for everyone who experiences eternal life in Jesus. In that moment, in that moment of being overcome with amazement, what has happened, do you think, to all of Jairus' frustration, fear, hopelessness, desperation, any of that? Where is it now? It's evaporated. It's totally evaporated and been overcome with amazement. See, in the resurrection, For all of us, the joy of what Jesus restores us to will make any pain that we experience along the way like a short nap. Yeah, it's real. It happened. Jesus isn't trying to minimize any pain. But compared to what he will rise us to, it's like a short nap is what he's saying. This is amazing. See, See how Jesus wants to give him more? Jairus wanted a transaction, a healing from sickness. But Jesus is showing his ultimate purpose a relationship, and not a temporary relationship, an eternal relationship through resurrection. And that's so much more. That's so much better. You know why? Today, right now, if you thought, man, this is an amazing story, I'd love to talk to this girl who this happened to. I'd love to meet and talk to Jairus' daughter. Well, you can't. She died. Now, she may have, like, gone on to have a great life. You know, maybe she got a husband, had kids, had had a wonderful life. This is amazing. But she still, in the end, died. And so if all Jesus has to offer is this one-time healing, what real good is it? Her greatest need, 
Our greatest need is to overcome death. And that's what only Jesus can do. So when we come, we come to Jesus wanting him to fix this or that. He actually offers more. He offers new life. That's what Mark is trying to tell us. When we want a transaction, he offers a relationship. You know about weaving these two stories together throughout this, the story of desperation, the story of determination. I think Jesus is trying to show us how we have this relationship, how we have a relationship with Jesus. And really, I think two things that we would all do well to remember, myself included. The first one is this. Keep coming to Jesus with the faith you have. Just keep coming to Jesus with the faith you have. Again, it's, it's easy with both of these to think about all they didn't know. They didn't know about the Trinity. They never, uh, they didn't know about the cross even. They'd never been to a Bible study. It's easy to say, too, oh, they just wanted something. They were, they, they were self-seeking. But they kept coming to Jesus with the faith they had. Think of the progression of this woman. You kind of see this progression here. She, first she heard him from afar, from other people. But then she came a little closer, but then she touched him. Then she fell at his feet. She just kept taking the next step of faith that she had in that moment. And that didn't happen overnight. I know it, it took 12 years for that to happen. You know, I think, I know there's some people here that you know what it is like to suffer for a long time. A long time. Maybe 12 years, maybe a lot more. Maybe some of you are thinking, 12 years, that's rookie numbers right there. I've been suffering a lot long. I've been asking what's going to happen when Jesus is going to come and heal me for a lot longer than that. Maybe like the one, you've tried everything, everything you have to fix. Maybe your illness, your marriage, your depression, your dysfunction. And maybe today you say, I don't know what else to do. I want you to know, I want you to know this morning, Jesus sees you. Just like he saw that woman in the midst of the crowd that day. And so just keep coming to Jesus with the faith you have. What is your next step of faith with the faith you have? Maybe you've heard about him, but it's time to come to him. Maybe you've come, but you've remained a little distant, and it's time to fall at his feet. What would it look like wherever you are right now in life? What would it look like today not to have it all figured out? Just to come to Jesus with the faith you have. You know, I think for Jairus, what he needed was the faith to wait. Others are telling him, man, leave, leave Jesus alone, okay? The fat lady has sung. This thing's over. But where is he? He's still there, right beside Jesus. Still waiting to see what he is going to do. Men and women, some of the greatest faith you will need in your life is the faith to wait. It's hard. It's not easy, especially when it feels like Jesus' delay is increasing your suffering. Or you feel like that the window of opportunity is, is closing and it's going to be too late. Have you ever thought that? Ever thought it's too late? That's it. My life is over. My marriage is over. My career is over. My relationship with my kids, it's over. It's too late. Or maybe you know exactly what Jairus is thinking because maybe someone actually died. And you think, you know, maybe if Jesus hadn't taken his sweet time, it could have all been fixed. But now, it's too late. Have you ever considered that maybe Jesus didn't want to just give you that transaction? He wanted to give you more. He wanted to give you a relationship. 
And let me tell you, it takes faith to wait for the more. It does. So just keep coming to Jesus with the faith you have. Second thing I'd say is this. When you don't know what else to do, when in doubt, fall at his feet. Just fall at his feet. That's what they both did. Think about the contrast between these two characters. He is a religious leader. She is religiously unclean. He's rich. She is poor. He has a name everyone knew. To this day, we don't know this woman's name. But what did they have in common? They fell at his feet. Listen, Mark is telling all of us this morning, anyone, everyone can fall at Jesus' feet at any time. We can all repent and trust him. And really, this falling at his feet, really what it is, is it is an act of submission. It is saying, with your body, your will be done. See, in, the, in that moment, as they fall prostrate at his feet, in that moment, what they are saying is, whether you give me this transaction or not, you're still God. You're still supreme. You're still king over every realm. Ultimately, ultimately, it's the faith to be obedient. Did you notice Jairus? Even after he's been told his daughter's dead, and Jesus is like, okay, let's keep going. Let's go to your house. Even after his daughter died, Jairus lets Jesus come into his home and call the shots. And Jesus, he's telling some people to stay, some people to go. He's telling some people to just shut up. This is Jairus' house. He could have overruled Jesus. He could have said, no, that's, that's not what we're going to do. We're going to do this. That's not what he did. He lets Jesus do exactly what he wants to in his house. And that's faith. That's falling at his feet. So do you need to fall at Jesus' feet this morning? Listen, maybe you've been angry. Maybe you've been frustrated. I've been there. Maybe you're just confused. Maybe you're hopeless. Maybe you've been hopeless for a long, long time. What would it look like this morning to fall at his feet and say, you know what? You're God. I am not. I'm going to trust you enough to do what you want instead of demand that you do what I want. See, when you fall at his feet, here's what you're doing. Deep down, here's what you're really doing. You are choosing the person over the transaction. Both Jairus and the woman, when they fell at his feet, they were saying, not only does he want a relationship over a transaction, but so do I. So do I. He is God no matter what happens. So you may have come to church this Sunday. Maybe every Sunday you've come to church wanting a transaction, but Jesus gives you a relationship. He wants to make you his daughter, his son. And so you can be by faith. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. If you have questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.